Now, our first witness this morning is Butch. Well, when the fight broke out, I got stabbed in the back, and I, I pulled my knife and hit him. That was the first person I ever killed. Butch Crouch was a hell's angel who'd murdered people and then rolled over and became a government witness. He was giving up details of this crime only somebody that was there would have known about. What good's a man? In his right hand, he had an automatic handgun and blood over his chest. What exactly happened here? Two people were murdered. A house was set on fire. Because of Crouch, I've been hiding in the witness protection program for most of my life. But I'm done hiding. From C-13 Originals, a division of Cadence 13, welcome to Relative Unknown, a new podcast about the stories and family we can't escape. Download Relative Unknown for free now on Radio.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. So as this is the last episode of our season, I figured I would answer the question that I get quite a bit. People ask me kind of all the time now, what is it like to work with Dwayne The Rock Johnson? So my answer is simple. He and his team at Seven Bucks Productions understand, and I, I really think this is kind of interesting, the value of time, which sounds silly, but time, time is everything. Working your ass off like they do doesn't really mean much if you're, you know, not being effective with your time. And Dwayne surrounds himself with really like the best of the best. There is a team of incredibly, and they wouldn't need to hear this from me, but incredibly efficient people. Uh, Brian Gewertz, Danny Garcia, Britt Johnson. Thank you for helping me on that trailer earlier, by the way. Kirby Allison. And of course, um, everyone at, at Dwayne's production company. Ultimately, you know, the research falls on me. Otherwise, this whole thing would be pretty insincere. But when it comes to the intangibles, they they come through. And that is what I've learned. Dwayne has had the number one movie in the world, the number one TV show in the world, and the, uh, well, you know, number one podcast in the world for a variety of reasons. And this certainly includes the fact that he hires humble, dedicated, and innovative people. It's about who you hire. And it's one of the many reasons I suggest you use ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter learns what your business is looking for, identifies people with the right experience, and invites them to apply to your job. 80% of the employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. The right candidates are out there. ZipRecruiter is how you find them right now. My listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free. I hate to say my our listeners for free. That's right, free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash WRH, as in what really happened. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash WRH. ZipRecruiter.com slash WRH. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. So I'm going to call a spade a spade here. Maybe this is a topic you don't want to listen to while you're heading to work or working out or whatever you're up to right now. Well, you know what? What are you up to right now? Think about that for a second. Think. All right. Anyway, I thought for a final reaction episode or really this um, bonus episode, I talk about my reaction to this first season and in particular, Kind of a uh, reoccurring theme that I was, I am surprised by. And my reasoning for this theme really starts back with Ali, episode one, The Talk. 
People were, you know, questioning his mental stability. Uh, if he could talk, did he go onto the ninth floor of an office building and talk a guy out of committing suicide, perhaps because this guy was suffering from PTSD? Uh, then I thought about episode two, The Lone Wolf, and got into how a guy, Governor Chris Christie, seemingly starts off with such admirable ambition into into being this ruthless political, you know, animal, if you will. And uh, how did his purpose, his essence, his mind change through the years? Uh, then you go to episode three, Without a Voice, Britney Spears, and this media-manufactured meltdown. And was she experiencing some sort of manic episode? What does that even mean? Uh, episode four, why Michael Jordan retired in 92. Uh, you know, if you listened, you realize the conspiracy theories are BS, but you also learn that Jordan... And I think we put it in somewhat of a, a refreshing way, just we are reminded the determination he had and how his mind was just occupied with winning in a way that I think we've never seen before. Um, episode five, Churchill, you know, did he suffer from depression? Was he an alcoholic? How did his mental strength play a role in his life? And then you get to episode six and Princess Diana, a legendary figure, a hero to millions and millions, uh, including myself and someone who suffered from bulimia and her son, Prince Harry has gone on to do a lot in destigmatizing, especially for guys like me, the impression that people have when it comes to mental health and depression issues that can make one feel weak or, or not like a quote unquote man. I actually think You'll find uh, a lot of people who suffer from depression ultimately are the toughest people in the world. So regardless of what I necessarily think, this idea, this discussion of mental health has been a reoccurring theme, I, which I found in all of the people that I covered or, or documented. And so again, to call a spade a spade, is this the sexiest topic? Well, actually, you know what? Maybe it is. We'll see. Uh, I think it's an awesome conversation. I asked my man, Chris Colbert, to track down an expert in this field. And sir, you definitely delivered. Rather than prefacing this with a million caveats or topics we'll be covering, the following is an incredibly interesting interview I had with Dr. Barbara Van Dalen, who is now a hero of mine. She's one of Time Magazine's most influential people which I find to be an incredibly obnoxious list. Unless you're on it, then hell, talk it up. And like I said, more important, Dr. Van Dalen is really one of a kind, a special person, a mental health expert, and has particularly focused on soldiers returning from Afghanistan and Iraq. Enjoy. So uh, do you prefer to go by Barbara or Whatever. Dr. Van it's Van Dalen like Van Halen. It's it's Barbara is fine as long as, you know, it's clear that I actually ha know what I'm talking about <laughs> because of the you know, background training and all that. But after that, yeah. So one thing that has really interested me uh, and at times maybe even I'd say aggravated me are the the words that are used when speaking about mental health. Uh, mm -hmm. and Diving just right into things, do you feel like there's a ways to go in sorting out our 
lexicon, uh, the the words and the language that we use when talking about mental health uh, in layman's terms? I think that's a really interesting question. It's an interesting issue. I think it would be less of an issue if we viewed mental health, emotional well-being, emotional pain in a way that didn't have barriers and shame and guilt and all the really garbage that prevents people from talking about themselves, their their struggles or challenges. So I because, you know, I was thinking about this issue words and how we use them and if, if we think about depression as one example what what someone may experience as tremendous pain um, uh, depression that comes from the loss of a loved one is very real very um, uh, crushing it can be crushing and can look exactly like um, a depression that comes out of really an internal process. The, the genetic predisposition to experience depression may not be triggered by anything, but yet we, we use the same terms to refer to both of those situations. And they are both similar but different. And, and so I think that for me anyway, and sort of thinking about the work we're doing and what we're trying to accomplish it's really the challenge that we have as people talking about and being comfortable with these experiences. They're, they are um, critical aspects of, of the human condition, and it's that, to me, that is really more challenging. But, but it is an interesting point, the words we use. And, and no, we, it's, not like, it's like snow and Eskimos. You know, we, don't, we don't have a lot of different words that explain these different experiences that, that have many, many similarities. Yes, exactly. Um, so well put. What what do you? How would you go about explaining the uh, DSM five? I was trying to think of how to how to uh, readjust that, but I mean, in in layman's terms, sure, someone who, who knows yeah. nothing, you know, what, what what would you say is the? How would you articulate that? So it's our it's our. And by our, now I'm referring to sort of the the professional effort um, to come up with a classification system that is is it's flawed at, at I mean, it just it's not a perfect system. and sometimes it's I think it's actually more unhelpful than helpful. I think I think more of that these days, the sort of the older and maybe wiser I get. Um, it, but, it is a system that really grew out of a need to um, label, identify. Some people would say more so to to deal with sort of payment issues than actually treatment issues. So I say that because um, there was a lot of conversation, still is, about one particular diagnostic um category post-traumatic stress and is post-traumatic stress, post-traumatic stress disorder versus post-traumatic stress. Service members have, and many advocates have lobbied, have, you know, railed against sort of the, the DSM and other um, sort of categories or categorizations that, that refer to post-traumatic stress as a disorder and have wanted to remove the D. You know, there's there's actually mm. been sort of movements, get rid of the D. 
And there's all kinds of reasons why, and we can talk about that if you're interested. But at its core, the reason why we don't is because we need that number in order to put on a statement that then gets paid, reimbursed um, by either insurance or mm. or however, whatever other system. So it's an interesting, it's a, it's a carryover from the physical health system in our country and in other countries. And so is it a great system? I don't, I think, again, it in many ways actually contributes to challenges that we have in, in, in being uh, focused on what is it that's hurting? What is it that is causing someone pain and suffering as opposed to a label, a diagnosis that still in our culture carries a lot of, of shame and guilt and, and feeling of being broken as opposed to a physical condition, illness, disorder. You know, we use all those terms to describe something that's not working properly, something that is causing pain physically, Mm -hmm. but we have a whole different way of looking at it when it's in the mental health space. Yeah. Well, it's that that invisible component that uh, I feel like makes a is one of the reasons it makes a big difference. I, I meant to say from the get go. I, I'm just realizing when looking at my notes, uh, just personally, this. Uh, how did you come up with "Give an Hour"? Because that is, I talk with friends and or even my therapist as a as a white guy in Manhattan. <laughs> I feel like you can you can't get any more privileged, and I oftentimes uh, think, well, you know, shit, I can't I can't imagine what it's like to be in another area or um, living in poverty and experiencing my depression or what I would call dysthymia, which is something else we could talk about. And you had this just like. Um, such a, a an important uh, organization where you get professional mm-hmm. therapists or psychiatrists to sit down with those in need who maybe wouldn't otherwise be able to afford it and give an hour, meaning, you know, a therapy session oftentimes will last about an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is a long way of, of me saying... Uh, it's uh, it's quite the honor to even to even speak with you here. Oh, you're very kind. Thank you. Well, yeah. I, you know, I, I come from uh, service. You know, my dad served in World War II, and he was a first generation American, and he was all about you help each other, and you, yeah. you know, I grew up in rural California, um, and it was very rural, and people <laughs> helped each other, and and so when I became a psychologist. I believed from the beginning that one of the things that I needed to do was always to give give to those who didn't have insurance or didn't have resources to to have this what I feel is a gift. I, I when I was young, I just digresses a little bit, but That's it probably right. tells about why I mm-hmm. built Given Hour, why it just sort of came to me and I was like, Yeah, this is exactly what we need to do. So when I was a young graduate school student. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, I, I so wanted to be a psychologist. And again, you know, this rural kid from California who didn't even know anything about going to schools outside of California. That was sort of this strange concept. Hmm. And eventually, you know, I applied, I didn't have the money to 
fly east to actually be interviewed. And somehow University of Maryland took me anyway. And uh, I was just like in heaven. I thought, oh my gosh, you know, I'm here I am, this huge university learning all this stuff. And I actually said, you know, to, to people in my graduate program, probably when I was a first or second year, you know, this is amazing. If we can just help people understand that if they, they trust the process, it can save them. It will really, I was, I was sort of so taken by what I felt like was a, a, a huge answer to so much suffering and pain. Mm. It just felt to me like, what are we doing? Why isn't everybody doing this? Why isn't everybody, you know, getting this kind of help and support? And, and obviously I was in the minority uh, in terms of, you know, people don't, aren't comfortable talking. And I, I wasn't always comfortable talking about parts of myself that were hurting or un, unresolved as it were. That's, that's a whole nother conversation about, you know, vulnerability and why we are so afraid to talk about it. But, all of that led to me realizing after 9-11, you know, there are going to be a whole lot of people affected by this, the war. It was so clear to me that we were going to war. Mm-hmm. And as a young mental health professional, I had worked with Vietnam vets and they were suffering and their families suffered. And it was to a great degree because they never got resources, help. And so I thought, we can't do that again. We cannot let that happen again. So I'm ready. I'm willing to help. If I'm willing to help, there's got to be more of me out there. Mm. And that was really the idea that led me to drive my little mom van with my two little girls, park myself on the floor of Barnes and Nobles. I read Nonprofits for Dummies and figured out, okay, yeah. I can do this. And that that was it. That was, you know, nearly 13 years ago. And what you, you had said that uh, it, it was a gift. What were, what were you referring to there? Do you remember you said that in the beginning of? Yeah, uh, in that little diatribe. Were, were, you ta- <laughs> were you talking about your own, your own background that you had? I mean, you no, have this incredible I- article <laughs> on Huffington Post called Meeting My Mother. Yes. Um, which is unbelievable, unbelievably moving, um, and also you. grounded in a in a reality. I, I I really respected that you didn't kind of create a uh, larger silver lining. I mean, right. there there was one there, but I'm sorry when you said gift. Well, I was just curious. I don't know what if you I, just yeah. What, what I meant and what I still believe, I I see it happen. I watch. When somebody is struggling and they don't know why they're struggling, Mm -hmm. they're in pain, maybe they're lashing out, they're fighting. And the gift to me is that moment when you realize it doesn't take necessarily take away the pain. It doesn't end the anxiety, but it gives you a a way of understanding what the hell is happening to me. Mm. What, why am I in this pain? It's, it's a chance to to address to deal with to work it's a it's a it's a, a hand up it's a way out of whatever and that and i've seen the opposite you know i i'm a child psychologist and much of my early years i worked with you know teens who are just in tremendous pain and and agitated and acting out 
And I would see, you know, so clear, they were so guarded, so defended, couldn't let anybody in, couldn't let anybody help, painful to watch. And so to me, that that opportunity for someone to make sense of what they're dealing with, what is happening to them inside and, and, and separate it from I'm bad or I'm wrong or mm. I'm broken or I'm, you know, fill in the negative blank. Mm. That's the gift that this power of, and it's not a power that someone like me or a, a psychiatrist or a social worker, it's something that anyone can, can help someone else have. And those of us who are trained, you know, obviously, hopefully, we're good at helping more of that happen and, and all the other pieces of that kind of work. But it's a human capability to, to have that awareness, that understanding. And it's a gift when we either find it for ourselves or help someone have it. It's almost like uh, I'm not a particularly religious guy. So for me, I, I've never really, uh, and this is just me, gone by the whole line of um, things happen for a reason, but people like you can make a reason out of things happening for so many, which I think mm. is a uh, is what makes uh, your occupation uh, so important. You know, we were talking about disorders, and um, what is the difference between a disorder and a disease? Hmm. That's a good question, and I don't know. I mean, if you ask ten psychologists, you probably get ten answers. Oh, really? You- I'm surprised by. It. I didn't know that. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you mine, and yeah. it, it's sort of you know, some people would say that. Um, uh, you know, uh, all mental health conditions fall more in the disease model. I don't, I don't subscribe to that. I mm-hmm. think that, um, you know, when I think about, and I, I guess my, my basic answer is I don't think we have a good answer for that, really. Mm-hmm. When I think about disease from the physical um, health perspective, it's something that we can look at and see the disease process. We can see the cells dying. We can see the cancer spreading. We can see the blood platelets, you know, white cells, not enough, too much. Mm. In, in mental illness, it's very hard to see something that, that is, in that way, a progressive disease. Some diseases, there are cures, there are remissions. Mental health, it's almost like we've tried to slap on um, the model that we had and say, okay, well, this now applies to mental health and mental illness. There there certainly are Alzheimer's as an example Mm -hmm. of diseases of the brain that affect us psychologically, emotionally, cognitively. Um, Schizophrenia, my mom um, that, that was her diagnosis and I, I, it fits, it's the best fitting, um, given how she functioned and how her brain functioned. Is that a disease? It, it sort of actually kind of in a weird way was less intense as she got older at, toward the end of her life than I think early on. So it, it doesn't quite fit, but it is a process. Um, it didn't, it didn't sort of, um, ever remit or disappear. Um, but it's different than other kinds of mental health challenges, conditions, um, disorders. I think we use them all interchangeably. I worry about the use of the disease model 
too much for mental health because it suggests that there are 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 either cures mm. um, and typically there are not, but that doesn't mean that people aren't able to function, recover, heal, mm. um, be, and in fact, most people with mental health fill in the kind bipolar. I mean, schizophrenia is, is, is the most, you know, sort of, oh, it's like Alzheimer's in the sense that it is relentless and destructive and mm. very hard for people to function as we think of healthy functioning. That's very, it's more rare, but, but bipolar, there are lots and lots of people who function with bipolar and are productive, not only productive, creative, capable, talented, um, members of society. So that's a long winded answer of saying, I'm not sure that, that it's an easy dichotomy disorder versus disease. Cause you also have then, you know, conditions and all these other mm. words that we use, um, which is why I typically try to stay away from the label or the use of, I don't talk as much in those terms as what does that look like in the person who's in front of me? And that example that um, I was talking about before, you know, somebody, anyone, any of us who have lost someone close to us, even if we had never experienced depression before, you know what depression is like. Mm -hmm. um, it is a dark pit where you do not want to get up. You don't want to function. You can't function. You can't sleep, can't eat. And, and that's, how is it? If that's a disease, how is it that then grieving and healing, mm -hmm. that's, that's not there anymore. That experience is, it, it, that's, see, that's an interesting, I think, comparison and does, we don't have a good explanation for that. What is the difference? I, I know that I think I, uh, in terms of how, we're, how people are phrasing things now, um, I, I fit under under a, a bucket that a lot I think a, a psychiatrist would consider bipolar too, but I never say that because I think it's so misunderstood. How mm. would how would you articulate bipolar one and bipolar two? Mm. Well, I think I think you're right that it's sort of and this sort of um, is the whole issue of I don't think most people unless they are have themselves or someone they love mm. really dealing with or addressing any of these um, conditions, circumstances, don't know much about these, these topics. Um, they have, there's a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of, of false ideas about bipolar, you know, used to, as we know, used to be called manic depression. Mm -hmm. um, and, and now we've moved away from that. I mean, I think, most people, most professionals would say that it really is is a function of the severity of the uh, the highs and the lows, and how extreme, how long it lasts. How, and but you can have bipolar without ever experiencing the mania, um, and you can have bipolar two that's very sort of idiosyncratic, unique. To you, but the the cycles are there. The depression, or that you mentioned, dysthymia, but it may not become psychotic ever. That when it when the the depression or the mania. So it it's uh, and you can tell. You know, I'm struggling with it because I I don't want to 
to to suggest that we really know where one begins and where one ends. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think we do. So how would you uh, describe in, to what bipolar one is? Well, I think when people, um, you know, present with this um, experience, life experience of, you know, they're cruising along and then something could be an external, could be an internal um, experience triggers, launches them into, and sometimes it's a stress. It, sometimes, you know, it happens, we often see the first bipolar episode in college or in late high school years, sometimes college because of the stress of the, on the body of, you know, moving away, not sleeping well, um, exams, yada, yada, yada. And so then this, this cycle presents of the manic um, sort of launching into a manic state that can last for, you know, hours, days. Um, and sometimes when, when that is, is very, very severe, the person can really lose contact with reality in a way that is very destructive and very dangerous. Um, you know, whether it, they become paranoid or, or grandiose, um, either side of that can be very dangerous because of the decisions and, and misunderstanding the cues in the environment and thinking that things are relevant to you when they're really not. They're just random events can lead to decisions um, that are life-threatening. And then you have the, the other side of that spike, which is the depths of despair and depression and um, just horrific lows, suicidal ideation and thinking, and again, can lead to a real thought-disordered experience, psychotic thinking, where you're out of touch with and misinterpreting. Um, So that's typically what we would, if someone presented in that way, that you would certainly, as a mental health professional, look carefully, want to understand the history, what, what was connected to that, the length of time, all of those diagnostic elements, factors um, to, to collectively, you know, the wisdom is okay. Enough people have come together to say when this happens in, with these factors, that's what we would call that. That's what you would, and, and would, uh, in terms of it being triggered, uh, is it, is it considered bipolar one if it's triggered by a medication? Hmm. That's an interesting point too. I mean, I think that there certainly have been people who that has been the case that they never had any experience of bipolar disorder and, and then a medication for some other condition is, um, you know, they take this new medication and it triggers a bipolar episode. So I would say that certainly that has happened. Um, I don't frankly know what sort of the current, because I'm not that close to, uh, practicing in day to day. I don't know what the current thinking is right now. Well, would you still call that bipolar disorder one? If in fact that has, that's the case, but I know that in the past it medication has triggered that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so do other mm. things too, you know, sometimes, uh, women having a child for the first time, you know, they have postpartum depression, but then that could lead to the first manifestation of that kind of cycling. So it's, mm. that's again, back to the, you know, these are very 
complex. We are very complex creatures in our brains and the brain chemistry and um, psychologically what triggers and, and environmental assaults trigger um, how then our brain functions is quite, it's remarkable and it's also, you know, incredibly powerful. Yeah. So I don't know if I'm going to be able to pull this puppy off, but I took some time on it. No, no pun intended. So uh, let me know. But as it turns out, watches, otherwise originally known as bracelets that had a clock on top of them, have a smashing backstory. Smashing. It was during World War I that watches became popular because soldiers wouldn't lose time searching for their pocket watch. The general public then took up on this, liking the efficiency. So now I've avoided watches until recently because I was like most pre-World War I people. I could, it was a little different in that I could just look at my iPhone servicing as a pocket watch to check the time. But when you go to look at your phone to tell the time, you then find yourself with a bunch of alerts and you get lost in a series of texts, emails, Instagram posts. And before you know it, not only do you not know the time, but you've lost the rest of your day thinking of the photo your friend had just sent with your ex-girlfriend and some other guy. Not that that has happened to me. I'm just saying. All of which is why I'm saying you should get a watch, but get a watch that isn't your damn, you know, everything else. That doesn't have Siri giving you directions to the moon and back if you're so inclined. Get a watch that helps you be efficient and also looks, you know, good when wearing it. My conviction of this movement has taken a startling turn. I'm so into this movement that I've teamed with a company literally called Movement Watches, otherwise known as MVMT Watches, and giving our show listeners a special deal. First off, Movement Watches start at just 95 bucks, opposed to those fancy-dancy watches of high-grade quality, blah, 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 that are four to 500 bucks. Come on. Movement Watches, I think, aren't over the top, but have a sleek, classic, quality design. Styled minimalism, if you will, is, is really the accurate way to, to put it, I think. So this is what's happening. Get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to mvmt.com slash WRH, as in what really happened. Go to mvmt.com slash WRH. Join the movement. I remember uh, <clears throat> I was probably 20 or something, 20 years old, and I took, um, I was on Wellbutrin and, and Zoloft, and then uh, in retrospect should not have been given uh, Adderall mm. and was up uh, partying, mm. uh, smoking a lot of weed, uh, sleeping with women for three days, and I thought, like, this is great. This is helping, you know, <laughs> and it was clearly some sort of, you know, hypomania yeah. you know, episode and then just crashed. And yeah. you don't even kind of realize it. That's the, that's what makes it all the more surreal is looking back on it. You say, well, good God, what was going on? But in the moment, it's more of like, oh, this medication is helping me. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right, right, uh, right. And, and you know, there, therein lies, as you know, it, that's what has been so painful for so many people who have gone through that. It's the highs can be quite reinforcing mm. uh, as long as they don't reach that, you know, critical, dangerous point where then something horrible happens. And so it's 
you know, the, and, and again, these are words that I, I think can be very detrimental. They work against us, you know, it's a fine word compliance, but it usually suggests, you know, I'm the doctor telling you to comply and take your medicine. Um, and if you're not, if you don't, you're non-compliant. And so it's again, a judgment. It's like, well, as opposed to medication is, it's challenging for all kinds of reasons. This being one, just the fact that it makes me feel a way that I don't like, or it takes away from, and sort of, so I think the more we join and work with people mm. we're working with and see it as um, a very understandable challenge, you have to give certain things up in order to to have a sense of of predictability. Mm. Um, I don't not control, but predictability, and that's painful. It may be a worthwhile choice to give up this feeling that is can lead to a high that is not healthy, but it's certainly understandable that people wouldn't want to. It's a worthwhile conversation. And it, but to me, what's so interesting, that interesting isn't the right word. I think what's so important about it is that we do need to try to get a better handle on, if we plotted everybody who is sort of comfortable and says, yep, this is the best, best diagnostic label for me. This fits my experience the best. And we plotted all the people who were bipolar two versus bipolar one, there'd be huge overlap Mm -hmm. in their experiences and huge differences within the groups. And so I, I want us to get more toward the, the holistic moving away. We need those diagnostic categories and terms to understand what something is and what we need to do and where we need to go to address it. Absolutely. But I think we, as a, as a people, and it's, it's human, it's in that way, it is, that too is human nature. We like to categorize things. We like, it helps us make sense of something, but sometimes we get a little bit too caught up in that and that's, that works against us. It kind of will, you know, the DSM, like there's this, um, Winston Churchill quote, although I have to double check if it's actually his quote, because it turns out a lot of his quotes are not, uh, that he's been credited for are not his, but he has this line where it's been, uh, that democracy is the worst form of government, except all the others that have been tried. (laughs) And the DSM-5 sort of reminds me of that. It's like, it's, uh, I assume it, it's, has the best of intentions and it seems to have work in in certain ways but then for someone like me when when reading it and i'm thinking well you know all you you know you only you have to fit one of you know f- i think it's what five of nine different mm-hmm. uh criteria every day for two full weeks and i i remember when i first read that i was thinking well geez this reminds me of professional baseball scouts who would you know, back in the day would come to a game with their clipboard and they check a variety of talents to determine if you could be a pro. So if you, if you run well and throw fast and catch well and deal with pressure well, then, and you play more than one position, boom, all, you know, you could be a pro. Um, mm-hmm. And now in the case of modern day scouting, and this has been fairly well proven, they know it's silly to show up with a clipboard and make sure that a player can check off five of the nine talents they're looking for over the course of, you know, two weeks in minor league baseball, 
they're looking at where this guy was, you know, was brought up, uh, who his mentors are, how he taught. Mm. Like it's, it's this, you know, huge approach of really understanding a person's narrative, not mm. just their sheer talents. And so that's what's always sort of uh, irritated might even be, might, might be the fair word at, at times when, when mm-hmm. someone is feeling really down and they're, and they're looking at how the, how one is diagnosed. It's, and it's not, I don't think, and this is obviously, obviously only my opinion, but I would assume it's like someone with, with cancer where it's, it's, you know, you're, you're looking for literature or ways in which it can be explained. And it's a cancer that has not been, we haven't sorted out ways in which you can treat it. And you're like, well, geez, this doesn't feel. Doesn't help. This doesn't help. Yeah. <laughs> well, makes- I, I love that, that, that baseball analogy. And, and I'm going to use that. I'm going to, I'm going to definitely borrow that one. And your, your, your comment about, the DSM is absolutely well-intentioned, good, smart people. Yeah. Many of them, white men, um, mm. that you know, we need to kind of look at that too. There, there hasn't been a lot of cultural um, diversity in the development of a lot of these things. We know that, um, or gender diversity. We're moving toward more of that, and that's a good thing. But it is, I think, it's very much like that. It's like okay. We humans, and and it makes sense. It's not a bad thing that we like to categorize. It helps us make sense of our world. When I Mm -hmm. go outside, I expect my street to look a certain way and my house to be oriented in a certain way and it to be cold in the winter. And although these days, who knows? But (laughs) So those things help me function without really stressing or straining. So I think that it makes sense that we, and, and also... If I'm a mental health professional, like if I'm a physician and I go, okay, this is cancer, we now know based on, ed, on research and trials, we can do these things. Now, we also know that with cancer, there's no silver bullet, easy answer, uh, absolute either. And we know that certain non-medical interventions are incredibly helpful for the care and treatment and success of that patient. Mm. So don't we also want to move more and more toward the holistic on this side as well and use those diagnostic categories as indicators of how is my suffering manifesting itself? Mm. The thing that's similar is that I'm in pain in some way. I am not functioning well. I'm not able to be productive. I'm not able to live in my family or in my community and what are the specifics of that and what can we do to address those specifics to me going to your point about if I'm going to help this person I better be thinking along those terms Mm. Hmm. that's so interesting Um, how do you think you know one thing that I I think a lot of people with depression uh, really get bothered by is 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 the old oh I, you know you're trying you're trying so hard to reach out to friends or family and you say you know I've really been struggling with depression and they say oh yeah I mean I was feeling depressed last week and right. you know I I uh, I'll tell you what though I went out I, I went out and got some ice cream you want to go get some ice cream and right. and and they you know the thing is that you really don't I I mean at least I don't want to come across as cynical because again they have the best of intentions and right. you want to say thank you for you know but it's uh, while while meanwhile it's also like 
the worst thing that they could say because it's it's like it'd be like if you had a terrible uh, migraine issue for years and someone said, "Oh, dude, I had a headache last week. I totally know what you feel," and it ends up just kind of uh, it kind of um, ends up having the opposite effect. Do you have any opinion on or thoughts on? I guess I should say how we go about taking the word depression. We're almost, how, how do we go about being almost in a way more precious about using the word depression, but then at the same time, um, at the same time, not over diagnosing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, is there a balance at the same time? Should depression in, instead, and there's no one way, but is there something to be said for depression? I've really taken to, in the last few months, this word dysthymia, mm-hmm. because for me personally, it feels like uh, that I am, I just have a, a, uh, a lower, uh, I'm forgetting what the word is that I've been using, but a, kind of a lower um, bar, if you will, just, mm-hmm. just, con- just that my body is... I'm healthy in so many ways, and there's just there's this one, which is and so it goes. There's just one part of me where my uh, bar is a little bit lower, and thus live with a with a very specific melancholy uh, that I'm not judging one way or the other. That just is, and to me, it feels like dysthymia is is the word to use uh, opposed to depression. Uh, I think that that's a really um, thoughtful and nuanced sort of uh, articulation of, of what I think a lot of people experience. I mean, on the one hand, you know, depression, um, it's a funny word because it, has, it means something very serious and it also means nothing. Yeah. Um, and I think that we've, like a lot of words in our, you know, our, our cultural societal way, mm. they get overused and then they, they stop meaning anything important or a value or, or to explain anything. And I think that you're right. I think that is what's happened to the word depression. And so a couple of things, you know, for me and the work that we're doing, I think in part, that's why we've sort of moved away from the, the diagnostic labels at all. I mean, our work in the, through the campaign to change direction is really, a public health movement around recognizing signs that people are suffering emotionally. Mm-hmm. And then it's about, well, what is causing that? Is it, is it a condition or a, uh, that is um, caused by, you know, trauma that just happened? Is it depression, the diagnostic category of depression where this is comes uh, over this person, regardless of what's happening in their life? Is it dysthymia um, a word that I think very few people would even know what that means. I used to, when I was doing primarily practice and I would talk to folks that I was working with, you know, we would talk about, you know, it's sort of like a low grade sort of chronic state. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, it's there. And that seemed to make sense to them and sort of fit and was helpful. It's like, yeah, it's sort of there. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it's less there, sometimes it's more there, but it's kind of there. Yeah. Um, and that can be, you know, hard for other people who haven't experienced, don't understand it. 
So I think that, you know, the more, it, the more we are successful at pushing this conversation out into the open, which things like this, you know, these kinds of conversations that you are doing are helpful, the more that people are curious so that when you say, I am depressed, what I'd like people to say is, hey, are, are you telling me that this is something that is, um, you know, like it slams you against the wall or is it a, gee, I'm depressed because meaning disappointed or let down, but I just chose depression mm-hmm. as the word I'm using. Um, I would like for us to become more, not in a, in a sort of PC kind of way, but more in a, in a curious, thoughtful way, mm-hmm. the same way that people will talk about you know, you wouldn't say to somebody who says, you know, I have cancer, that you wouldn't say, oh, well, gee, you know, I had a little infection exactly. the other day. Exactly. I say that all the time. Yep. Right. And so I think that we have to, because you ask, you know, how do we get there? I don't think we can stop using the word. That's not going to happen. It's part of our, and, and here's what I think about the word. I almost think that we, people use it kind of loosely and sloppily in a way because people feel horrible, bad, deep, dark things, but it's, they don't want to acknowledge it, but it's almost like the word allows us to kind of refer to something that we don't really want to talk about, but we use the word mm. to reference a lighter version of it, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, it's sort of like people say, oh my gosh, I'm going to kill myself. Now, they don't typically mean it. They say it in a way that makes people who have lost someone to suicide mm-hmm. flinch. Yeah. You know, right. it's like, don't say that, y- right. you know, but we know how common people use that phrase. And, and many people have had suicidal thoughts at really low times. It doesn't mean that they've contemplated suicide or maybe they did, but decided we're able to decide I'm not going to, and we're able to you know move away from that. But I think that's another one of those interesting sort of pulls to something that is very serious, very dark, very dangerous, very scary, mm. but we use it in a very lighthearted way all the time. Yeah. 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 I, I, I don't, you're right. I, I, who, who knows if it, if it will change. I mean, I, I it wasn't, I think people forget. Um, well, I don't know. That's a broad stroke. I, I forget how it was only a few years ago and this is in a more, you know, the more liberal state of, 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 well, really more of Southern New York, uh, but where, so in other words, I guess it's still really changing, but to say something was silly or stupid and, and saying, well, that's gay. Right. Sounds like that was, you know, has, it was stopped being used decades ago, but it was really, I mean, we're talking only a few years ago, if that. If that, um, right. I mean, and so, and now it's like, no one says that. Uh, fewer people, but not uh, not really, uh, will say that's retarded. Right. Uh, but I still hear that all the time and will flinch. Right. Uh, so, you know, who knows? Maybe the word depression does does take on a... a a different a different meaning uh what how would you uh go about explaining uh the campaign to change uh direction 
Oh, that's one of my favorite things to talk about. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure you've never been asked that. So I, I love to talk about this work because it is. It's just one of those um, movements. I mean, it is becoming a movement, and I, I'm very proud, very honored to be um, sort of part of. You know, we created it, but it is now taking on sort of a life of its own. Um, it really did begin um, as a response to a request that came out of the vice president's office, um, vice president Biden's office after the Sandy Hook shootings. It was, it was a horrible time in our country, um, a very painful time. And the vice president's office reached out because of the work we had done through given hour and said, look, you know, you've done this work in the military space addressing mental health and what, what are we missing in our nation? What are, what are we not doing? Why are these tragedies, traumas? This was after Aurora, the shooting in the mm-hmm. Aurora theater. And so I was honored to be asked to take a look, you know, how do we address the need, the mental health needs of our country? And I brought together some of my friends, colleagues who I trust and respect from different um, sectors, corporate and nonprofit and, and, and a couple mental health folks who are not your traditional mental health folks. And uh, we well, started uh, talking. Could you, sorry, uh, not to cut you off, but what do you, when you say not traditional. Meaning that these are, one was a psychiatrist and mm-hmm. then another psychologist and myself. And then the rest of the group was non-mental health people. But those, my, my uh, psychiatrist uh, buddy and psychologist, you, these are folks who, think outside the box in terms of our field. Yeah, that's um, what I wanted to, that's what I was yeah. trying to highlight. Okay, sorry. Yeah. And, um, you know, we sat down and we all started sort of talking about what do we need to do? We knew we didn't need new programs or programs or, you know, there's a resource shortage or there, we know that. And, but, but at the core of all of it, at the core of, of all of this, I believe is the barrier that prevents people from being able to talk about their mental health, their emotional well-being, their depression, their bipolar, their post-traumatic stress, whatever it is, we don't talk about those things about ourselves, with each other. We don't share openly the way we share about our physical challenges or concerns. And so we reasoned that if we were ever going to prevent tragedies, um, devastation, the su- devastation of suicides and these kinds of horrific crimes that at the root, there is a mental health, serious mental health issue that was never addressed. We have to tilt the culture and, and move us toward uh, uh, comfort, openness, recognition, so that's that's how it started, and then it was okay. Great, that sounds great. How are we going to change the culture? And then that led to working with the the big um, communications firm Edelman, who stepped up and said, "You know, we'll help you." And together we created these two components. The first, very simple, these five signs. You know, this is public. Again, this is public health. This is we want everybody. So it had to be simple. Had to be basic. It had to be things that everybody could recognize. But the idea was, look, we can all recognize when someone we know or ourselves, 
when we are suffering emotionally. And if we see these things, we need to do something about it, just like you would if someone had a broken leg or was bleeding. Mm. And so it started to um, really grow from this idea and 50 partners to now 500 partners. And now it's international. I just got back from Rome and it's just amazing what's happening. States are adopting it. One, And again, the sign of a true movement is when it starts to, to kind of take off and go in directions that you never knew it would. And that's happening. And so it's just it's extraordinary. I feel like, and it's not just this, this is one, but I think, I think it's one big piece of a larger effort, movement, desire in, in not only in our country, but in other countries to get out of the shadows with this mm-hmm. and just be more open. And it's, it's exciting. Um, hmm. and, cool. and huge. <laughs> and, hmm. um, and the last thing I'll say about it, and it's, it's not a challenge to me, but other people get a little, a little worried. They're like, oh my gosh, if you're right, and people start saying, you know, I'm, I'm struggling or I'm hurting, what are we going to do if we don't have the resources? So, my, of course, my question is always, well, what do you want them to be quiet? I mean, you know, what is the, we have to have to have the conversation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, again, you apply that to cancer. It's like, yes. so don't go see a doctor if you have cancer. Right. If there aren't enough docs, right. Don't go, right. See, don't say you've got cancer. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, in, in Rome, did I hear this right? You were meeting with the, with the Pope? Well, I had, we had hoped that we would meet the Pope. The plan was that, um, this, this small group, it was a gathering uh, to work on, um, on a, a project that really is the Pope's sort of call to action for the world. Mm. It's called the Laudato Si. It's just beautiful, amazing. It's kind of like a, it's called a, the encyclical. It's his second encyclical. And I guess when the Pope does something like that, it's kind of like a white paper for a Pope. <laughs> um, oh, wow. And it's I, this I one, no which is many hundreds of pages long, but it, it talks about um, we need to do a better job of caring for our common home, our planet. And that mm. covers the environment and it covers caring for those who are marginalized. And obviously that's where I come in and our work. And so this gathering occurred in Rome and that is in response to the Pope's um, sort of message to all of us. And uh, the Vatican was very involved. And, and as we were all heading in, um, unfortunately there were some very serious, very ugly, very graphic threats to the Pope's life. Oh, wow. And so the Vatican became very mm-hmm. concerned about his safety and ours. And so we did not meet the Pope this time, but I, this gathering will happen again next yeah. year. And hopefully at that time we will, but the Cardinal who is um, really driving this, the Pope's uh, mission uh, participated and is amazing and lovely. And this is, uh, this is, uh, this is serious focus on, moving all of these efforts in a more holistic way and including caring for people who are suffering uh, from really horrible conditions of poverty, but also and human trafficking and refugees. And part of all of that are all these things we've been talking about, trauma, depression, anxiety, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's, it's a big, 
it's a big issue that needs to be addressed. And I'm proud that, you know, mental health is a part of it. I haven't uh, studied the Pope to any great degree, but by all indications, this guy is killing it. He is. I, mean, I, I am. <laughs> Compared I am to not, Benedict, this dude is rocking. He's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Damn. I mean, I'm, I'm not Catholic, but um, yeah. I, he, I feel like he is, if not the greatest leader of our time, he is oh, certainly up there. I can't right. really think of anybody else who is doing more and being more honest, transparent, yeah. clear. Huh. It's uh, amazing. So I, I was uh, really humbled to be there. And then, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you've also worked with with Prince Harry. Was that is that in the, with the Invictus Games, or is my imagination getting the best of me here? No, we did. We had the yeah. the privilege of of working with the Royal Foundation early on. Um, the first year after we launched the campaign to change direction. So, as you may know, um, the Obamas and uh, the the royal family had a lovely relationship, mm. and we launched uh, the campaign to change direction. And Prince Harry and um, uh, the Duke and Duchess started working on this project that eventually was called Heads Together, focused on mental health. And so, because of our partnership and work with the First Lady's office, uh, First Lady Michelle Obama. They reached out, asked if Prince Harry would be interested, willing to do a PSA for Change Direction. And I had the uh, really the joy of writing a PSA for the prince on my living room couch with my husband <laughs> uh, and then watching him deliver it. Uh, it was pretty amazing. And then we met, we were at the event in, at Invictus where we um, we premiered his PSA. So here I am on stage. It was mm-hmm. one of those amazing moments, really yeah. wonderful talking about the Prince. He's sitting, you know, five feet in front of me. Mm-hmm. We show the PSA and he's so humble. He is, he's another one of these, um, you know, iconic figures in our world right now. Who, Harry. Yes. Mm-hmm. Who is just, he's real. And he's um, just uh, talking about things that most People in his position, you know, before him, never did, never would, and I just think his his mother would be incredibly proud. We did an episode on Princess Diana, oh. and it, it ends. It's it's funny you say this because it it ends not funny, but it, it I'm completely connecting with you on in the sense that it ends the last five minutes just on Harry. I yeah. did all of this research on Diana and the whole thing and watched all these specials, which most, most of which were really a joke, but it ends on just how this guy is. I mean, wow. Yeah. Uh, you know, so um, it's so interesting and, and that you been, say that. He's been so, so open and so honest. Oh my God. Incredible. The pain and yeah. the trauma and it's just, it's, it's remarkable. And again, I think we are, are very, very fortunate. And we, Campaign to Change Direction, are doing our second global summit in London um, after, sometime after the wedding, the royal wedding, because we are hoping to invite Prince Harry to, to you know, attend and, and, and would love to have his new bride mm-hmm. join him. And, and also, the Duke and Duchess have also been way out front talking about um, emotional well-being, mental health. You know, when when the Duchess talked about as a mother, 
she really wanted to make sure that if her children ever were suffering from depression or anxiety, that they came and talked to her so that mm-hmm. they could work together to figure out how to get them help. I was like, oh my gosh, mm-hmm. this is amazing. Yeah. So they are they are doing a great service for their country and, and the world by putting this out there. Yeah. I could, I'm like, I have a million things I could get into now on that front. I mean, it's so interesting because it kind of, it starts well, you know what? I was going to go on a whole Diana thing here, but um, it is amazing, especially in a time where we need some leaders. Uh, those two have uh, have stepped up. They've stepped um, up. Yep. Uh, so, um, well, first off, thank you so much. We've been talking now for an hour. I really appreciate your time. Oh, it's been um, fun. It's been great fun. Uh, and I'll say it in the, uh, you know, when I'm introducing you uh, in the in the podcast. But I'm, I'm, if if you're comfortable with it, I, I'm going to recommend just everyone googling "meeting my mother" and your name because I think it's a, it's a, it's 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 wonderful. It's terrible. It's painful. It's happy. It's just um, I've never read anything quite like that. Oh. Uh, so um, so thank well, you for that. Um, well, Andrew, that's very kind. And yeah. um, I don't know if you knew this, but there's actually this a documentary film about that whole journey um, that's going to be out on PBS next. I guess it's going to come out probably in May um, because a documentary filmmaker, I think, I don't know if I talk about that in that article or not. I've talked about it elsewhere, but the film it was that in and of itself. I, I should send you a copy of it just so you can watch yeah, it. Yeah, please do. I was just thinking, I, I thought at first you were saying it was already out. And I was like, oh my God, I didn't know that. The, how do I not know? Okay, so it's coming out. It's coming out. Yeah, it's okay. now we're doing, we're starting to do some screenings. The filmmaker is very passionate about using it as a conversation starter. And so mm-hmm. there's going to be actually a screening in, in New York. So I'll let you know. Um, yeah, I'd love to. I, that would be great to meet and, and uh, yeah. it would be great to have you with us. But thank you yeah. for saying that about the article. It was, uh, oh, of course. I mean, I met, it, yeah. I mean, it's, it's also rare to get people, I think, on the other side. You know, there's kind of the patient and then there's the psychiatrist or the therapist. And it's rare that you get the kind of therapist, psychiatrist end to open up in a personal way about anything, not in a bad way. That's just how the kind of relationship goes. Right. Um, so can, I say, I, can I say something about that? Of course. Yeah. So I think, and not, it was not intentional. I think our profession and, you know, I mean, all of the psychologists, psychiatrists, the whole mental health community, mm. certainly when I was trained, you know, you, you're, you're the blank screen. You don't share, you don't, and and there are good reasons why you certainly wouldn't want to go in and see your therapist and then have them spend the hour talking about themselves. I mean, that's not appropriate. No. But I think that we, two things happen that I do not think, again, it's sort of the evolution of a field and the, and the evolution of care for people. Mm-hmm. But one was that because this is such a vulnerable topic, people are uncomfortable and afraid and feel shame and guilt. Unfortunately, we in the mental health field, uh, uh, unintentionally kind of colluded with this notion that the that our therapy hours were sort of like private which they hmm. should be private hmm. but privacy and secrecy there's a it, it's hard sometimes for people to differentiate and so what is a private conversation 
I think, unfortunately, meant that people didn't didn't share, didn't say, I go to therapy or ther- therapy's been very helpful to me because they yeah. felt like, I don't want, you know, that's It's a that's sign private. of weakness for a lot of people too. Exactly. Yeah. And so that contributed to this unfortunate place we're in today. So that's, you know, decades and decades and decades of that. The other is that we do need to do a better job, my humble opinion, mm-hmm. as a psychologist, we do need to do a better job of recognizing when it is, in fact, helpful, appropriate, human to share with someone that we're working with so that we are not seen as somehow unaffected. That's such such an interesting point, huh? I never even thought of that. Yeah. We all are. There isn't isn't anybody in the field, I guarantee it, who has not been affected themselves or someone they love by a mental health challenge. It's, that's impossible. Right. And right. so I, I, I just feel really strongly that we need, we on this side mm. of the equation need to do a better job of saying, yeah, me too. And here, here was this. And now let's get back to what are you working on and how can I be of help to you? Right, right, right. Anyway, uh, sorry about that, but that's my little rant. No, no, I, I kind of, once you jumped in, I, I thought that that's where you were going and I've never thought of that. Well, I've, I've always thought that, but never, um, never, never thought of it in terms of speaking with someone like yourself where you say, well, actually there's a point here, uh, but no, I'm happy you said that. Uh, Good. Should, should, last question question i uh i think here is uh (laughs) should should we uh, and i mean this on a on a fairly practical level unless it's already happening uh is there something to be said for getting a group of psychiatrists together psychiatrists therapists people in the mental health field with with that expertise a group of uh ling- you know linguists or or english majors maybe a group of people who have experienced uh, mental health issues in some capacity and maybe a group of other people who are who don't really know much about uh any of the above and try and sort out ways in which people the public can everyone in can uh, better articulate the, the all of the words that we're talking about and and you know what's the best way to use the word depression what's the best way to under to use the word bipolar like how how we want to go about categorizing this moving forward or is the best route to to and I'm not saying this in a in in a in any way of of dismissing it is there a, a you know, DSM six coming out that will be that we feel will be more comfortable with. I don't. I think the latter is not not the answer. I, I don't think it can come uh, because I believe this is a cultural shift that we're working on, mm. and that means it has to involve everybody. And that means we, as a culture, I, I do think that if we get there, meaning if people from all walks of life start going, you know what, I, I'm really struggling with this depression that has kind of been part of my family. You know, like they just start talking at lunch and somebody goes, yeah, you know what, when 
in my family, you know, it's not depression, it's anxiety. Have you ever tried this? Because my sister-in-law, you know, I mean, that's the, that's where I want us as a Mm. country to deal with this part of us, the way we deal with other parts of us, of our, our experiences, being human, being people. I think if we get there, then these words will have different, they'll be used differently. People will not be so flip. They won't dismiss somebody who says, I'm really struggling right now. I, you know, depression is something that I have lived with for 10 years and they won't go, oh, well, you know, yeah, me too, mm-hmm. when that's not the case. Right. So I like your idea of continuing to push on how do we communicate? How do we educate? How do we inform? And I guess for me, I, my brain always goes, give an hour, you know, change direction. It's a very simple way of taking complex things. And these things are complex, but at the core, it really is all about people are in this kind of pain. It's this kind of pain. And we need to get more smart, comfortable, willing to acknowledge and talk about this kind of pain. And hopefully that will help us be more thoughtful and and use words that are more are more descriptive for that experience and not just throwaway language. Um, but I, I think you're right. It's good to bring people together and struggle with these things. I also think that the culture is, it's going to, it's, I think it's going, it's inevitably going to, well, it's transparency is a, is at a point, And I think, Teenagers, people in their young 20s are now uh, so much more transparent when it comes to their, and this is again, just my opinion, uh, and, and sensitive to mental health that I think if there's a lexicon that they can use, it will be much more seamless or easy uh, than one may think, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. So yeah, I, I think, think we, they're I, open to it. It's just yes. like, do can we have those tools or those words ready for them you know, in time? Uh, yeah, and we, and we need to start, we need to do it early, 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 like to kids who are five and six. I mean, yeah. that's, that's the place. That's where, you know, as we're teaching them other things and talking to them in other ways, it's those early, early years. And then it just becomes how they talk and how they think. Right. And then we wouldn't have to deal with this in 20 years. <laughs> so yeah. I agree. And, um, and thank you for asking hard questions that help me think about things. Cause then I, I can use those going forward when I'm talking and suggesting things. So thank you for the opportunity. Well, no, I mean, of course, but uh, I mean, thank you, but it's, so there isn't something like that out there. I mean, I, cause I think it, I think that could really help advance things as a serious, you know, you really put together a group of people uh, from different walks of life where you, where you really put it together. Cause again, it's like, I'm, I'm going back to the word retarded. It's just, if you think about it, that just changed so quickly. And part of it was because we had words to replace it. It's like, mm-hmm. you're not retarded. You're either saying that someone's like being dumb or you're mm-hmm. saying you're trying to say that someone has autism or that someone has like we we I, I feel like we had words ready to then replace 
what you were trying to say, whether you were being an ass or whether you were being serious, mm-hmm. uh, we were, were ready to kind of step in. Uh, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think, and anyway. you can see that. I think we can see that in the in the um, the whole movement that allowed people who were gay, lesbian. There we go. That's a better. You know, yeah, uh, right. They yes, they they had example. as opposed to words that were ugly and nasty mm-hmm. and, 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 and negative. So, yeah, I, I, I think, I think that that is a useful conversation, um, to have and to, to offer up, you know, it's, um, it's, and, and I'm excited because I think there's interest and you're right. I think that this next generation, they're, aware that it's time to struggle with this and that's a good thing barbara thank you i can't thank you enough for your time um absolutely like i said delightful and i will i will definitely let you know when we do a screening in new york and yes it'd be great to meet and i know chris will keep us connected and um and i absolutely I'll, i'll i'll end on this i can't stand certain lists like 30 under you know Forbes 40 under 40, all these different things. <laughs> I think that they are like just the the pits. With that said, how does it feel that you are at least one year, what you know, you are considered a, one of the 100 most influential people in the world. When you got that call, uh it well it was a funny moment in my life that mm-hmm. will always be it actually came a su- on a sunday morning in an email and my this. daughters okay. were sleeping upstairs and my husband had gone to a conference and i got this email um from time and it said you know blah 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 you've been chosen and i just started shrieking <laughs> i was like what i right. can't what and my daughters were like mom what is wrong with you <laughs> um but what it did and what it has continued to do is it gave me a platform yeah, to do more of what I feel so strongly about. And I will forever be thankful um, to the wonderful people at Time for giving me that honor and that opportunity. Um, so it, it has been very helpful to keep doing the work that what we're a, doing. Yeah. What a great way to put it. It's like if, yeah, use use that. Use it. Absolutely. Use that, baby. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, thank you again. Thank you. And thank, again, thank you for doing this incredible series and what you do and the conversations, because we need these conversations, Andrew. So keep it up. And any way I can be helpful in the past, and I would love to do that. So I look forward to meeting you in New York sometime soon. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you. That, mean, that means a great deal. Um, Absolutely. Take alrighty. care. Have a good one. So thank you again to Dr. Barbara Van Dalen. To learn more about her work, you can go to givenhour.org or changedirection.org. The article that I referenced in the podcast that I really took to can be found if you just Google search Dr. Barbara Van Dalen and the title of the article, which is Meeting My Mother. And so with that, uh, that's a wrap on all of season one. Thank you so much to the millions of listeners. Uh, if you ever told me... <laughs> no 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 that was chris flannery who has been here no include this we'll include that that's a funny idea who helps me a lot in every episode um sits here with me as i go through draft and draft puts in those little tidbits that we normally have to edit out because they're a bit uh 
you know, off topic, but I will want to thank everyone else uh, here at Cadence 13. Uh, the response has been overwhelming. Corcoran, McDermott, my guy in front of me right here, Flannery, Schultz, Colbert, Royston, Pellegrino, Courtney, Francis, Kramer, Green, Miller Time, and the entire staff at Cadence 13. Kirby Allison and her coworkers at Jonesworks, thank you for your endless support. Britt Johnson for your surreal efficiency. And of course, the executive producers of this show who are the best in the business for many reasons, including reminding me the values of hard work, patience, and humility. Those people are Dwayne Johnson and Danny Garcia at Seven Bucks Productions. And of course, the, the, the team that I work with every day, Joel McEwen, my man, Alan, all day, every day, David Levin, and Michael Nelson. I also have to say, as much as I uh, like to really tease, to say the least, agents, I want to thank the people at uh, WME. Uh, all of you all know who you are, who really changed my career in such an incredible way and for introducing me to these amazing people. And then uh, a special person, Brian Gewurz. How are you still single, man? How are you still single? I went around and pitched the Muhammad Ali story for years, years. CNN, ESP, I can't even go through the long list. And then I told you, and you were obviously integral in developing this into something much bigger. And like all of the people who work with DJ Gortz um, said, you know, how can we make this project bigger and better, more entertaining, uh, smarter? And man, you are calm under pressure. You never seek an inch of credit. It took me like I think five or six episodes to finally realize that I should be saying your freaking name uh, when going through the credits. Smart and a once in a generation uh, sense of humor. So thank you, Brian Gewurz. I am a lucky guy. I'm um, on Twitter and Instagram at Andrew Jenks. What really happened returns in the fall of 2018. We hope to get back to number one. I'm working my ass off to do that. You can listen to any of our episodes by subscribing to What Really Happened on Apple Podcasts or listen on Google Play, Spotify, our website, jenkspod.com, or wherever you get your shows. 